0: Two black hawks helicopters appeared on top of us, and I remember being able to see the face of the guy that had the weapon on the on the helicopter door. And I immediately thought, "Oh, oh, this is going to get ugly." And then the helicopters started spraying with bullets. They had a mini gun that goes like a sounds like a chainsaw. Like, nee! And and I remember hearing the trees falling down. And he was like. Look like the end of the world, to be honest.
1: From Aura Studios, this is The Line of Fire, with me, Ramita Navai. I've been working in conflict zones around the world for nearly two decades. And in this series, I talk to fellow journalists about covering war. And the life-changing moments of confronting death. Welcome to The Line of Fire. In this episode of The Line of Fire, my guest is the award-winning Peruvian journalist and documentary maker, Guillermo Galdós. This is the second part of my conversation with Guillermo. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I'd recommend starting with that first where Guillermo tells me about the dangers of exposing drug cartels and what it's like dealing with hitmen. Guillermo, you're talking about meeting kind of ordinary kids who get caught up in violence and gangs. What about the men who make it to the top, the drug lords? Tell me what it's like meeting them.
0: I've always been... uh... Fascinated by, by, those type of characters, and uh, simply because what you see in the Hollywood movies is, it's not real, you know. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet several high-ranking drug traffickers. Some of them, you know, with millions of dollars on their heads.
1: Millions of dollars.
0: Millions uh, of dollars of rewards, money. bounty money. Yeah, bounty money. I remember I, I interviewed the head of the Knights Templar. Uh, it was this was a, a Mexican. Tell me about the ne-
1: Knights Templar.
0: Uh, it was a, a Mexican cartel that appeared in a, in, a, in an area called Michoacan, and I remember I, the, the name of the guy was La Tuta, Servando Gomez. And um, when I went to interview him, there were more than ten thousand. Mexican soldiers looking for him.
1: I mean, we're talking one of Mexico's most notorious drug lords.
0: Yes, he was the Mexican version of Breaking Bad. He was a, a, a teacher that ended up being the main man in methamphetamine production in Mexico. And when I met him, he didn't look like a teacher. He looked like more like a peasant and... The day I met him he was I realized immediately that he was high on coke and he was drinking he was uh, a bit drunk for my taste uh, not nice to meet uh, a criminal and the first time you meet him he's completely off his head because you don't have a chance to actually to establish a relationship with him. And I remember saying to him, you're not going to like this, but I won't interview you today because I think that you're a bit off your head and you will come across as, you know, somebody who is not serious and then you won't be happy with the interview and then it won't be good for anyone. So I'm willing to wait. I said to him and he, he took that as. A compliment, I think. And he realized that, you know, I wanted to tell the story, the real story of what was happening there. And he was not in a condition to give me that story. So we agreed to do the interview two days later. The the person I, I was with, she thought I was crazy because we had the opportunity to interview him and I was not taking it.
1: I mean, even even, even meeting him is an extraordinary feat.
0: Yes, but I wanted to... You know I have a chat with him, an open chat and I explained to him, listen, I'm, I'm not an informant. you clearly know that because if not I wouldn't be here. And he knew the you know that I had spoken to other drug cartel members and, and he knew I, I told stories and I reported on the war on drugs in Mexico. He appeared two days later. he was very neatly dressed. Obviously, he, he have not had any drinks or anything because that's what I asked him for. And we had a long conversation. The camera was on for part of it, but then he asked for us to turn off the camera and we continue our conversation. And the funny thing was that when we were in the middle of this interview, suddenly uh, in the radio, I start listening that uh, the army was on its way to the area where we were interviewing him. So he had to leave and uh, he moved to another place and we were left in that house with like 20 armed um, guys. And, and I asked him, what should we do now? And I remember them saying to me, have you got bulletproof jackets? And I said, yeah, I've got some. So we went to the car, we got the bulletproof jackets, we put them on, we were inside the house. And suddenly I see this pickup truck that arrives in the house. It was full of hay in the back. And they get all the hay off the pickup truck and they open this, like, a a secret compartment. And suddenly they start taking all these weapons out, like grenade launchers, AK-47s, and they were putting together the weapons. And I remember thinking there, like, oh, my God, we are just about to be attacked by the government. And... uh, so I I said to them, listen, you know, I'm going to stay here. I'm a journalist. And if you're going to go and fight with the army, you know, you're more than welcome. But we're not going to go with you. And, and at the end, they stayed in the house. And for 40 minutes, it was really tense. And then the army luckily went the other way. And uh, after, you know, an hour and a half, I think we were clear to leave. But um, when I spoke with Latuta, my impression is that he was a very sick person. Sick in what way? Sick in a way that his concept of life and death was completely different to the one we had. And the fact that he was not only a drug trafficker, but he was a great abuser. The, he told me that he has... More than a hundred kids. He told me that local mothers came and offered their the virgin daughters to him so he would make them pregnant so they would be pregnant with the son or daughter of Latuta. I remember him, you know, showing me videos of him giving money out on these tiny towns in Michoacan as if he was Father Christmas. And he was sick in the sense that he didn't have a problem in telling me how he had killed hundreds of people and that, and you know, and he was talking with his uh, associates about the uh, recent murder and it it was brutal. And uh, he got angry after the the interview because I asked him about the deals that they had with the Chinese. And, (laughs) and he said something surreal. He said, tell me about one Chinese citizen that had been kidnapped or had been harassed here in Michoacan. No You won't find any Chinese citizens that, you know, we've kidnapped or killed. And it was true, because they were working with the Chinese. Kiyomu, tell
1: me about the deals with the Chinese, because I don't know about this.
0: Oh, sorry. uh, The Knights Templar, they didn't only deal with drugs in Michoacan, but they were heavily involved in uh, the export of iron to China. And they controlled a port uh, where they had one of the biggest places to export iron in the whole of Mexico. And the, the iron was being exported to to China. So the Chinese came to Michoacan and they made a deal with the cartels and they were buying very happily the iron that was produced by the cartels. The cartels realized that they could make more money actually exporting iron to China than trafficking with, you know, drugs in the area. So when we exposed that relationship of the cartels with the Chinese, My email was hacked. The web page for my company in Peru was hacked. And my phone started behaving really strangely. And I'm sure that it came from China because we found out through a couple of friends that work with computers and hackers and all that, that actually the bugs were sent from China. And um, he sent a message La Tutta saying that how did we expose that relationship. And my answer was simply was, listen, you told me if I wanted to see a mine run by your people and you showed me a mine run by your people and you said to me that you were dealing with the Chinese. And then he stayed quiet. He never replied anymore. And then uh, I think a year later, he got arrested and he's uh, serving a long sentence in a Mexican prison. Were you relieved? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, I think I was relieved. Uh, I, I thought that, you know, I felt it felt like incredible that such a big chunk of Mexico was controlled by a nutter like Latuta because he was not a low profile trafficker. No, he was very brutal and, and very open about his dealings.
1: Were you scared meeting him?
0: When I interviewed him, yes, yes, I was, I was, uh, because, you know, he was all the time offering alcohol and he, and, and, and I immediately thought, I remember that he was filming me. I don't know why I had that feeling. And, and months later, It came across that, yes, indeed, he filmed his meetings with politicians and with journalists. And whenever he felt like it, he will put out those pictures and ruin the lives of those people.
1: What is it that men like that have in common, these men who get to the top, that's not just their propensity for violence and ruthlessness? Is there something else they have in common? I think most of
0: them... Uh, have a chip on their shoulders, hmm. and they they want to show a lot more of what they really are. Uh, obviously, there are kings in their kingdoms, but when you compare that to the world, you realize that they're just they're warlords. That's where they are. Modern traffickers, I think, what we have now in Mexico are, you know, 20 different warlords that control the country and uh, they do whatever they want in the areas they have. And the abuse of women is something that I've seen on all the places and with all the high-ranking drug traffickers. Is, I mean, we know uh, Chapo Guzman was addicted to Viagra. And, uh, and 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 he was a way of like trying to prove his manhood and and that he could have like 20 girlfriends all of them really young and that he could have lots of kids and that idea uh of a, you know real mexican macho is engraved in these guys and, and 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 most of of the very high ranking traffickers until I'm talking about until 10 years ago there were people who came from the countryside they were peasants they started trafficking with marijuana and then when the 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 game changed and they started exporting cocaine and they became very big you know they were still peasants but the kids that what we call the narco juniors or the new, The new narcos, the sons and the daughters of these guys that were once peasants and ended up like big drug traffickers, those guys who are now in power, that's a different story because these guys have been educated well. I know that some of them, for instance, have been educated in London. Their kids can go to an American or to a British university or to a university in Europe. And then they go back and probably most of them, they pick up on the family business, but they're educated.
1: Does does that make them more dangerous?
0: That makes them more dangerous because they can reach further, I think. They can go further than the... Because if you think El Chapo Guzman, he was mm. a peasant. Mm. You know, he was a guy that spoke, very shy, you know, a brutal criminal and assassin and all, all of it. But he was a peasant, the way you look at him. And if you dress him with peasant clothes, you, he, he could be a guy who was harvesting marijuana in a field in Sinaloa. In but these guys, the new guys, I mean, they look like lawyers, you know, they are in suits, They have, you know, all the new cars, all the technology. And yes, we saw that in 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 Culiacán not long ago when El Chapo San was arrested. The guy was wanted by the U.S. and the Mexican government is obliged to release him because of the gunmen of El Chapo San, what they did on the streets of Culiacán. They took over Culiacán. 700 sicarios appear from nowhere. Sicarios are hitmen. Yeah, sicarios are hitmen. Uh, 700 uh, hitmen appeared from nowhere and they took over the city of Culiacán and they obliged the the armed forces to release Ovidio Guzmán. That was surprising.
1: I mean, El Chapo is perhaps one of the most famous drug lords of all time and you've had dealings with him.
0: We had dealings with, uh, with his people and certainly when he became famous. And before anyone, before Kay del Castillo went to meet him and all that, I went with uh, a dear friend that I we worked a lot together. We've been working a lot for a number of years with Angus McQueen. And we decided uh, we wanted to go and look for a chapel. And uh, I spent months in Culiacán trying to get access. And finally, we we got access to La Sierra and we got access to El Chapo's brother and to all his security and to his mother and to all of that. And because we wanted to tell the story of El Chapo and get it right, uh, it was important for us to tell the fact that one of his sons had been killed by his own people. And, and the story of, of how this happened Uh, it was pretty surreal for us because the war touched his family as well. The war on drugs. The war on drugs and the same war that they, that the cartels were fighting against the government and against all the cartels, you know, touch El Chapo very personally. You know, one of his kids was killed. We asked permission to El Chapo's brother to film in the tomb in the mausoleum that was built for El Chapo's son, and after a few days he came back and he said, "Yes, you can go and film there." So we went with Angus. We went to this mausoleum, looked like a small church, where the boy is buried, and he's buried in a place in the outskirts of Culiacan. The place pretty dangerous actually because you could see it was full of armed men. And we went to the mausoleum, we filmed inside the mausoleum, and when we were coming out, we encountered El Chapo's wife with a number of hitmen, and she had warned me before not to film there, and she was not happy. So I immediately said to her, yes, we're leaving, and I realized that she didn't know that we had filmed already. She saw me with the camera outside the mausoleum, so she didn't know that we had been inside already filming. So we left, and we were followed by a car full of hitmen, and then we tried to lose them, and then we got stopped uh, very suspiciously by the police that works for the Narcos in Sinaloa. And I remember seeing through my rearview mirror how this policeman was approaching my car, And he got his pistol out of of his waist. And uh, he had the pistol in his hand while he was approaching me. Then he saw the camera that I had on my lap. And I think that he didn't know how to react. We ended up going away. We changed cars. We went to the hotel and we left Sinaloa immediately. But when I was on the plane and the cartel people called me and they had kidnapped our driver. So I could hear my driver on the back shouting because they were torturing him, and El Chapo's wife was saying to me uh, that she wanted those pictures, that she realized that I had film inside, and that she was going to kill the driver if I didn't hand over the material. And uh, I was on the plane about to take off to Mexico City, so I said to her, I was going to erase the footage. She said, "I I don't want you to erase it, send me your card. So I got to Mexico City, I made a copy of the material and I sent her the card, uh, the memory card and my driver was released luckily. She was pretty angry. I know that there was uh, some talk uh, within the the cartel, especially with Chapo's kids about, you know, that they were not happy with the fact that we had filmed in, in their brothers mausoleum and they talk about actually, you know, doing something to us. But I know that by a very close friend that El Chapo's mother intervened and she said, don't do anything. You know, those guys had permission. It's not their problem that, you know, my son, El Chapo and his former wife don't have a good relationship. But it was pretty scary. What happened to your driver? He was released and uh, we took him out of, of Sinaloa. Was he from Sinaloa? He was from Sinaloa, uh, but he had family in Los Angeles. So uh, we sent him there for, for a few months.
1: Where is he now?
0: He's back in Mexico, yeah. He's back in Mexico, all, all good. I've, I've been with him not long ago.
1: And Guillermo, classic journalist, not deleting the footage and making a copy. Um, would I be right in assuming that you did
0: something with the copy? I actually used it in the documentary. I That's bet you did. <laughs> yes. That's did you check did.
1: with the driver before you did that?
0: Uh, I did. I did. I said to him, um, listen, we have to use that material. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the film took a while to to be broadcast and... Um, and at the end, we used it, and and I thought, and I didn't know it would end up as the most watched documentary in the history of Discovery Channel Mexico. So for a few years, every time I went to Mexico, people recognized me and they say, "Oh, that's the guy who did the documentary by El Chapo." And wow. I had a couple of <laughs> situations because of that, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, these characters like El Chapo are fascinating. You said that meeting people like him is very different from Hollywood. It doesn't sound that different from Hollywood. Tell me how it's different from the films and also why you think these guys are so romanticized when, as you say, they're so brutal and so violent.
0: You need to, I think, understand the context where these people come from. And I'll put you an example. In La Sierra, in Sinaloa, in this area where people don't go and that we have full access and we actually flew on a plane that they had into the Sierra. And I was completely, it it sounded like, um, like fiction. When we arrived and I realized why people love him so much, it was mainly because of two things, because these guys are like Robin Hoods in their own communities And they help people a lot. And I met a guy whose uh, son had a car accident in La Sierra and he was pretty badly injured. And El Chapo sent an air ambulance to collect him, to collect his boy and take him to a hospital in Culiacán. So when I met that father, I realized that that guy was going to protect El Chapo for the rest of their life. And that was the, the, the case with the majority of people there. You know, these guys are like local Robin Hoods. But then why I say it's different than than, than Hollywood? Because, you know, even though they have these macho presence, you know, with their, uh, you know, uh, M16 hanging from there, their pistols and all that, El Chapo was not, you know, a guy that was carrying weapons. I mean, his hitmen where he, he was surrounded by armed people. He was like... Every time, you know, he, he went through Culiacán or La Sierra, he was like the president going by. You know, his convoys of 10 SUVs and stuff like that. But for me, he was looking at normal people. El Chapo was really small. His brother was also really small. They were, you know, they look like peasants and they spoke like peasants. And the only thing that they had behind them was a lot of money that allowed them to do whatever they wanted. But if you take them and you put them, is El Chapo himself or is La Tuta himself really powerful? I will say no. I will say there are other people that allow them to be as powerful as they are, and those are the lawyers, the politicians, and the armed forces. Without those three elements, without them being accomplices of the narcos, because a narco is no one without a good lawyer. And now a narco is no one without good connections in politics. And a narco is no one without good connections within the military. So without those three elements, they are no one. And that's, the thing that surprised me because I was thinking like, how can a man like El Chapo have a massive organization that operates in more than 100 countries? That was not possible. You, you, could, you could see that by speaking to him. But obviously the lawyers, the entrepreneurs, the banks that allow these guys to be who they are, they're accomplice.
1: So what is it about people like El Chapo? If they're not cleverer than the others... Uh, if if they're not necessarily more charismatic than the others, is it just their propensity for violence?
0: I think that you show that you're brutal. People respect you, but uh, y- if you're brutal without money, they will get you. You can be very brutal. You can kill a lot of people if you don't have a big wallet like these guys have. But In,
1: they don't start off with big wallets. So what is it about them that attracts the politicians, the lawyers, attracts all of the support behind them?
0: Uh, but I, I don't think that when they are low ranking, they don't go, uh, politicians are not looking for that. Once no, they so become, how do
1: they get to that high ranking place? Uh,
0: by killing people, by being brutal. Uh, that's... It's as simple as it's that. It's as simple as that. You don't, get, you, you, you don't get to the top in the drug trafficking chain by being a nice guy. You, or uh, by being
1: charismatic? No,
0: no. You can be hmm. charismatic, but you need to show power. And the only way to show power in that world is like showing who is stronger. And, um, and that's, I think, the case in the majority of narcos in Mexico.
1: Guillermo, do people act differently when they're driven by greed and power? rather than ideology
0: i haven't seen a criminal group in latin america that is driven by ideology uh, not even farc not even people like that
1: i i guess i guess i'm thinking you know well, shining path, I, we we could argue that yeah. that's
0: ideology. Yes.
1: And I'm also thinking that you have, you know, you have reported in the Middle East yeah. uh, where that's ideology rather than greed and power. Yeah. So if you, you know, comparatively, if you look at your experiences, the thing that sets Latin America apart really, as you say, is that it's power and greed. So, do people act differently when they're driven by that than ideology that you may have seen in other places?
0: I think it's more dangerous power and greed, and that's the majority of the examples that I've seen in this part of the world. When people said, "Oh, FARC is fighting because of the ideology; they want to take power," that that was bullshit. Uh, you know, they were fighting because they were fighting for their space in the business, and they were for a while the biggest cartel in the face of the earth. Then that was changed and that was taken over by the Mexicans. But this is something that I've seen very close in my part of the world and is how the money that drug trafficking generates has created a situation nowadays where you have, you know, all these brutal assassins and, uh, you know, all these dangerous people going around, With impunity and that impunity simply survives because these guys have a lot of money and drug trafficking has created a cancer in Latin America because, because of corruption. Because, you know, what has all that money generated? Recently, I was in Ecuador and they, they stopped eight tons of cocaine. I mean, 320 million pounds. In just one shipment. Mm-hmm. If you think that those guys are, you know, moving that amount on a regular basis monthly, we cannot even begin to understand the amount of money that they move. And that is the big problem because they can buy themselves into politics, they can run countries. And then when you've got those alliances that we have started to see about drug traffickers joining politicians, that is, that is the end.
1: Guillermo, I want to ask you about that one moment where you faced death and you were really scared. And it was in Colombia, February 2002. Peace talks with left-wing rebels had just broken down. Can you take me back to that day and tell me what happened?
0: Yeah, I the war in Colombia... At the beginning uh, in 2000, I remember, you know, I was quite interested in what was happening there and I started going a lot. And I remember being with FARC and he was like all these, you know, young journalists, you know, going to film these left wing guerrillas.
1: For our listeners, can you tell us in a few sentences who FARC are?
0: FARC, the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, it, they were the oldest guerrilla movement in the world until recently. They signed a peace deal with the Colombian government. You know, I was I was really interested in this complex situation that Colombia was living in at the time. So I went and covered FARC a lot. I went to interview this high ranking commander of FARC and uh, we were doing a documentary for discovery channel actually about terrorist organizations and farc had been labeled as a terrorist organization by by the US and the European Union so i went and hang around with them for one day and while i was there with the commander farc kidnapped a plane and they landed the plane in a highway and they took away, I think, a couple of of politicians that were on board. And immediately, the president, President Pastrana, he broke the the peace negotiations. He stopped the peace negotiations, and and the FARC commander. I was inside FARC territory. And the FARC commander said to me, this I "This is recommend- the
1: jungle in Colombia."
0: This is in the jungle, a few hours away from a place called San Vicente del Caguán in southern Colombia, right in the middle of the jungle. And I remember the commander said to me, you should leave now, and I left. We drove to a, a city called San Vicente del Caguán. It took us like three hours to get there. We slept there, and, and and at night we could hear some bombing taking place around where we were. The next morning we, we left pretty early, And we were surprised that there were no cars on the highway. Where were you
1: you driving now?
0: We, we, We were driving to a place called Florencia that was like three and a half hours from San Vicente del Caguán. And I remember that there were no cars on the highway. And our driver, called Jerry, I still remember, Jerry, he stopped the car. And he disconnected the needle that measured the amount of gasoline in the car, so it looked it that the, the 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 car was empty, that he didn't have any gasoline, even though we had a full tank. So I didn't realize why he did that, but then a few moments later we got stopped by FARC, and you could see that the the FARC guerrillas were really excited, and they were like leaving the area and they needed cars so they were stealing cars and luckily they went inside our car they look inside and they they thought we didn't have any gas so they let us go
1: ah clever clever move jerry yes. and why 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 were you trying to get to florencia
0: because uh we knew it was not safe to stay in the area and farc told us it was not safe so we were trying to get to florencia and suddenly no cars on the road that was bad news Suddenly we encounter a truck that was crossed in the highway. I get off my car, I see, I see several fire guerrillas, and uh, they were shooting at the tires of the truck, I mean, just to, to make sure that nobody was going to move it. And I remember listening to the bullets bouncing from the wheels, and, and I said to the guy, hey, what are you doing? You know, you're going to hit someone. And suddenly, while I was talking to them, Two Black Hawks helicopters appeared on top of us. It was the first time in my life I saw Black Hawk combat helicopters so close to me flying, and I remember being able to see the face of the guy that had the weapon on the on the helicopter door, and and the guerrillas like they pushed back and they were like under the trees, you know, and I immediately thought, oh, this is going to get ugly. And suddenly, one of the guerrillas fired to the helicopter. I could hear, bam, 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 bam. And then the helicopter started spraying with bullets. They had a minigun that goes like a, sounds like a chainsaw. and, And I remember hearing the trees falling down. And it was like, looked like the end of the world, to be honest. I remember I went down to a ditch and I crawled a little bit to the side They were fighting for like 10, 15 minutes, and then I assumed the helicopters uh, ran out of gasoline, so they went back to refuel. And uh, when they left, I stood up and I went to the place where the truck was, and I remember seeing a female gorilla that was cut in two. I remember seeing the legs on one side and the torso on the other, and I had been chatting with her 15 minutes before. And another guerrilla was injured there and then somebody approached me and then he said to me like, you see what you do, you journalists. And I say, hey man, you know, I have nothing to do with this. You know, I'm just trying to cross. I just interviewed your commander yesterday. Look at the interview and all that. And they they basically said to me, nobody's going to cross, move away. I went back to my car and by that time we've already had like, a, you know, a queue of cars behind us. Like you know 10 maybe 15 cars and uh and and they kept saying to me hey mr journalist go and speak with we need to cross we need to cross and the helicopters appeared again there was another battle i was a bit more removed i mean i was like maybe 150 meters from the area where they were fighting and uh i remember thinking how this dream that you know I had at one point about the peace process and uh, the a peace deal was going to be signed. After that event, that dream collapsed, and I knew that there was going to be war for several years before any agreement was reached. That was at the beginning of Plan Colombia. You know, those helicopters were part of of the American help to fight. Drug trafficking and FARC in Colombia.
1: And and, and, what, and what does it look like where you're standing in the area they're fighting? Is it a is it a paved road? Is it in the middle of?
0: No, it, it was a paved road, but it's in the middle of the jungle. You have you know big trees next to it. You have rivers crossing and stuff. It's is is a very green area on the top of a small hill and then the road went down and that's where the truck was crossed in the middle of the road. So th- the first time the helicopters attacked, I was down below with Falk, And then when they left, I managed to come up, up the hill. And I, ju- and I remember Jerry telling me, you know, I thought they had killed you because obviously I was down there when all this happened. And then, uh, I went back to speak with Falk when the helicopters left for the second time and I was trying to make them reason that we wanted to go through and that I had an interview with their commander that needed to be broadcast. And I even showed them the interview and they didn't give a shit, to be honest.
1: So, so at this point, you're kind of pleading for your life because you know that if you stay, the helicopters are coming
0: back. Yes, I knew the helicopters were coming back. But of course, Colombia's that part of Colombia, they were, they were so used to mm. uh, looking at gun battles and stuff. And I remember that the helicopters were shooting 150 meters away from where we were. and And they were like standing up, looking at it. It was like they were not taking cover or anything, and and then you know I realized that for them it was normal, it was daily daily life. But the second time I approached Falk and I asked him, you know, how could we move the thing? I said that there was a sick lady that came in a car that she needed to go to get through, and they they started firing at the wheels of the truck again, and one of the bullets that bounced hit a lady. It was because there was a group of civilians behind me and it hit the lady in the, in the leg. And I remember this lady falling down to the floor and, and I remember seeing this massive hole on her knee. And suddenly I realized that the bullet had gone through one leg and, and it was, you know, had stayed on the second leg. So that woman, I'm sure that she was not able to walk ever after that. So the, the lady was shouting. It was this, you know, amazing scene. And then the guerrillas were really hit up as well because, you know, you have all the guerrillas that had just been killed by the army. And I remember the whole scene. And um, and um at the end, I don't know why, I shouted at these far guerrillas. And I said, you see, you see what you've done. I've told you not to shoot your... You know, to the, to the tires because the bullets are bouncing. I told you that before. And I remember this really young guy. He probably, he was like 17 and he was looking at me. He was sweating. I remember very clear his face and he had like white on the side of his mouth, you know, and he was like, you could see that he haven't had any sleep and probably the girl that was killed was quite close to him. He was in shock. And when they were kids, they, they were, you know, They were just very young people carrying weapons and and just being incredibly, incredibly responsible. They left the place where the truck was. And at the end, we we managed to cross. And uh, it was incredibly traumatic for me. I mean, what happened with the lady that was next to me? And then seeing this female gorilla cut in two, I remember it—it it, it shocked me for a while.
1: And um, Kemo, what was going through your head when this was all going on, and you were in the middle of
0: it? I was—I was thinking that, you know, they could—they could kill me. Yes, I—I I thought about that. I—I I could hear the bullets whistling, you know, next to to me and. And the sound of of the trees falling down, I remember. I, I, I was confused. I thought it sounded like a chainsaw, and uh, yes, he was um he was pretty hectic.
1: And Guillermo, that moment where you thought this was it and you could die, what were the thoughts then that were going through your head? How were you facing death in that moment psychologically?
0: I thought that I've never been that scared about dying to be honest, but I, I thought, you know, when I saw that girl, it, it, it impressed me. You know, when you see somebody that has been cut in two by bullets, is 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 not, mm-hmm. it's not nice. It's, is it's incredibly traumatic when you see it like a meter away from you, especially when you've been, when you had been talking with that person 15 minutes before. And, um, And I thought her face looked at peace. I remember because, you know, she had been cut in two by the bullets. Her face was intact, you know, and it was obviously white because she lost all her blood. But she had a peaceful look on her face. And I remember about thinking, how is that one can have such a traumatic death and end up with a smile in your face and uh, and I and I just remember thinking I hope that if ever that happens to me I just go in peace and you don't feel much
1: It's Ramita Navai here. Before we continue the conversation, I want to thank you for listening to my show. I hope you agree that these stories are not only powerful but important. As I speak to some incredible journalists from around the world about what they've learned from working in dangerous places and how it's changed their perspective, it would be great to get your help in sharing their insights. So please do spread the word and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you continue to be inspired by the series. I look forward to you joining me for more episodes. Now, back to the show. And how did that change your perspective on
0: life? I mean, I think you realised that, you know, it's, it's just we are so vulnerable all the time. And it's just a second that changes things. Uh, literally, a second made me aware of, I think I was more concerned about my security, certainly, after that event. And it took me to another level of conscience and awareness, I think, uh, when I, every time I went to a, a war zone or to a conflict zone.
1: And apart from changing the way you worked and changing your approach to risk and safety, how else did it change you as a person?
0: I think it made me a better person. How? I think it made me understand that i was living such a privileged life and and it was a matter of luck it was like playing the lottery when you were born you know and uh, some people are lucky they're born in decent places and some people are not and i've always thought what will happen to me if i had been born in a place like Southern Colombia where my father was a guerrilla or my mother had been killed by the army or by the guerrillas and you know, if I will join the army and, and and had that anger inside to go and kill other people or, or those who kill my parents or my sister or my you know, so you, you start thinking about those things and you realise that is a matter of luck. And at the end it will it depends a lot where you grow up. And it depends a lot what surrounds you, and um, and some people are able to to overcome those obstacles and and to you know come through. And but I would say that the majority won't.
1: Do you think you'd be the same person as you are now if you hadn't experienced some of these traumatic events?
0: Mm, I don't think so. How would
1: you be different?
0: I don't know. I think. Uh, in my case is is quite clear I think the um uh, the example because I have an identical twin brother who does something completely different. he's not a journalist he's an agronomist he's an engineer uh, he you know sells and buys wheat around the continent and and uh he's never understood why my need to go to dangerous areas and report stories from there and uh, he's always asked me why is the, I'm so keen on going under the the feet of the horses he says <laughs> he, he he's I mean he he doesn't understand and and we've talked about it before but I think it's once you see things like that and you consider yourself as a vehicle to tell the stories of those people, uh, that's when when you start or begin to understand the the power of our work and, and how we can really sometimes change things or at least make people aware of what's happening around them.
1: What did covering that war and specifically that incident teach you about the way the world really works? Did you have any realizations?
0: I... I began to I think to understand the war on drugs there. And uh, when I realized that I, I, I it was very clear for me that Latin America was putting the the dead and that Europe and the US were putting up their noses. That left me with a feeling of not being fair the war of of, of that the war was not being taken seriously. And, and at one point, I, I thought if, you know, if they want to finish with cocaine, uh, they could finish it in two days if they wanted. You know, I didn't understand why that they were dragging this war so much and who benefited from it.
1: Guillermo, do you think you've become inured to the violence that you've been witnessing?
0: I think I... I'm... Um, i don't get as surprised as i used to does that worry you it's it's not that you are immune but i i think because of my experience you know what i see it doesn't bounce on my head as much as it used to do in the past and i think once i understood that i couldn't change the world because that's i think the dream that once that one has I'm, I'm 47 years old and i know that you know i've covered the war on drugs for 20 years and i know that you know i might have exposed a few things but i'm not going to change it yeah you know i'm I, i'm i'm not going to change what's happening so once you realize that and you realize that you can expose things and you can make some people think about and you can make some people re re reevaluate the way things are being done. Yes. But we cannot change the world. And also, you know, I cannot stay with all those faces and bodies Mm. that I've seen, you know, inside my closet. Yeah. You know, I know that I need to keep them out and and I have a life, you know, I have kids, I have you know a family and uh, yes and i don't want my family i don't because this is the thing you know once you look at your family and 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 i think things change a lot for me when i had my uh, kids which was 12 years ago Mm -hmm. you know when i had my daughter i started to think more about the places that i was going to go and i and i had seen so many Fathers being killed in my life and, and, and daughters and sons growing up without their parents that I didn't want to be part of that group of people. So I started taking care of myself more. And, and it's not that I haven't covered dangerous areas since I had kids. I have covered a lot of dangerous areas, but I think, um, I play things more carefully mm. and 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 I think I've I've got a certain amount of experience that allows me to navigate those waters you know with some safety.
1: I, I relate to both things you you said just the the fact that that realization that you start doing this because you think you're going to change everything and the realization at some point that dawns on you that hang on a minute hang on a minute my work is not going to change the world it's not going to stop these wars and that's quite a depressing moment. Um, and also, you talking about compartmentalizing some of the, you know the, separating the terrible things you see um, is a way of processing them.
0: I mean, the stuff that we do. I mean, many people go by, you know, many lives, and they don't even get close to that. And I think is um, is uh, is. You know, I, I I feel good that I was given that chance to approach that world and to be able to tell stories from that part of the world. But then also you realize that the world is not only composed by death and horrific things. You know, this world also has various, many, many beautiful things that I try, I try to think in those things nowadays and not in the horrible things that I, I've passed through.
1: Kiema, before I come to my last question, I want to ask about your time in the Amazon. You've spent a lot of time in the Amazon with indigenous communities. What have you learnt from them about their attitude to death and fear and dealing with death and fear?
0: Yes, we've... Um... We've done a lot of. Um, sorry, we just just speaking, and, and somebody just sent me a, a, a WhatsApp message from Honduras that um, uh, a woman that we met has been killed. Part oh, of God. the. Yes. And um, part of the wave of femicides that Central America and Mexico are going through at the I'm moment. Sorry
1: is to hear that. Abso- who, who, who was yeah, she, Guillermo? Absolutely
0: disgusting. No, it's, uh, I'll read you the um, email. Um, it says, talks about, oh God. Uh, it says, ah, it's telling me about, uh, he, he described it as a dantesque event where a man killed this woman that we knew with a machete, oh. killed his do- her daughter and her mother in law. The three of them.
1: Do you know and, why? Uh,
0: he's, he's asking me if I might have pictures of this girl in my archive because I've filmed with her before. Mm. I did a story in Honduras when they, they killed Miss Honduras just uh, weeks before she traveled to Miss Universe in London a few years ago. And I went, to do story about her murder, and I spent a few days with her mum and her sister, and uh, and that's when we met this woman that just been killed.
1: And how do you feel now reading that, Guillermo?
0: I don't know. For some reason it doesn't surprise me. Mm. It's a it's a, and the way it was done with with uh, machete and and the fact that you have a woman a nine months. Old baby and uh, the mother-in-law. I mean, three, three women killed with a machete. Something that in Europe will look like, you know, it will be headlines for sure. Mm. I can guarantee you that in Honduras, he will probably won't even make the afternoon papers.
1: And that, to me, is one of the most depressing aspects of this, and I think a really worrying aspect. Is becoming inured to the violence is that it's so normal and so every day that you receive an email like that and you're not
0: surprised. No, I'm not. I'm not. I um actually was speaking. Yeah, I was speaking with this guy not long ago, um about doing something in Duras about women and and actually abortion. Situation is really really bad for women in this part of the world. Mm. and I I, I I am i'm sad and ashamed to say that my continent is the place where more women are killed mm. uh, in the whole world even even more than in the middle east yeah you know and it's, it's a mixture of of macho attitudes of of and of you know the lack of value for life really
1: mm. Kemo, how often do you get messages and emails like this?
0: A lot, a lot, you know. And uh, and um, and yes, they, they send me yeah. pictures and, and, and stuff yeah. and, and messages and you know all the time. But mm. that's part of, I think, the network of contacts and, and 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 people that I know in the region. That you know, some some of them they are looking they see in me a way to voice, you know, the complaints or to voice the worries or to voice, I mean, yes, it's, it's, it's a bit sad sometimes and I need to disconnect from that because, you know, you're on the beach with your family and suddenly you receive a, a message from somebody in Juarez who says, hey, you know, I have this guy who's telling me that his daughter disappeared yesterday, you know, can you please call the... The guy in the attorney general's office in Juarez that you met a while ago and tell him to investigate this, please. You know, it's been like two days and daughter has disappeared. And one has to make some phone calls, you know, and, uh, and try to help. But again, I cannot fix the world.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I was asking you about uh, what you've learned from indigenous communities when you got that, when you got that email.
0: Yeah, Uh, I've worked a lot in the Amazon, and um, I love the Amazon. And um, one thing that the Amazon has, and, and people, and you start to understand that I think once you've worked a lot with communities, especially that are that have had a few contact with the Western world, or people who have been living in isolation or are in initial contact, as they call it. You, you, is... you made
1: an amazing documentary about an yeah. uncontacted tribe. I, yeah. I absolutely love that documentary, Guillermo.
0: Yes, yes. you won uh, the RTS, actually. Um, but, yeah, I spent a lot of time in the Amazon with that. And um, what I realized, it was how normal death was for them. And that surprised me a lot. And I uh, mentioned on one of my reports that uncontacted tribes or tribes living in isolation, involuntarily isolation, they practice infanticide. And of course, all the NGOs jumped when we published that. And um, and I understand. I, I didn't understand. I, I wouldn't understand it if, if I haven't gone through it. But when you are a, a, a nomad tribe and suddenly. You get a kid that gets born with uh, six fingers or with a leg that is uh, shorter than the other leg. They will leave the baby there because they the baby won't be able to walk. They won't be able to move by itself, and 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 they they cannot carry him. And if he has any sort of uh, problems, the most likely is that they will be abandoned. I've I've been told as well by experts that. They do that as well if you're born and you're an identical twin, for example. They, they will kill one. And, um, and then with uncontacted tribes, their names, they acquire their names by the first person that they kill. It's like a coming of age. So if you live in a tribe that lives in isolation in the middle of the Amazon and you have all the tribes that you fight with, clans, inside these massive reserves if they kill a white man their name is going to be white man if mm-hmm. they kill a guy from uh, another tribe and it's the Mashkopiro tribe their name is going to be Mashkopiro. and and I asked him and how what's your name before you kill and he said and they said to me you don't have a name you you are the son of whoever is your father and uh and that's how they know you until you get into this coming of age and you realize how death you know and and and, and you know it's been around in this spite kind of the world for such a long time guillermo
1: onto my final question which i ask all of my guests if there's one piece of wisdom you would give our listeners from everything you've experienced what would it be
0: don't trust anyone that will be my piece of advice and don't believe anything until you've seen it yourself why because there are lots of interests I think in this world of journalism and storytelling nowadays I have to see things I have to leave them in order to tell them that's I, I find I found out that that's the the only way of being accurate and the only way of reporting with, with the real truth. I don't believe on the journalists that report from hotel rooms and you know, are based on sources that people from here and there. You need to leave the situations in order to you know, be able to speak accurately about them.
1: But Guillermo, there's something about that that depresses me to not trust anyone because there's something so cynical about that and does that mean we shouldn't trust anyone not just in life and in business but in love what why would that no, be No your... that
0: doesn't apply that doesn't apply mm-hmm. to love I think love is a different um, is a different scenario but in in terms of, of my work yeah in terms of what I've learned through my experience is I don't go out trusting people normally.
1: And is that survival? Do you think that's also what's enabled completely,
0: you- completely? I think that has enabled me to to move around and to you know not to say too much uh, to the wrong people and yeah, and not to show sides in any situation. I think what, one of the things that has kept me alive is the fact that I show the characters that I interview that I am neutral, that I'm willing to listen, and, and I'm not going to judge them. But that doesn't mean that I trust them.
1: And if there's one piece of advice you would give our listeners from having faced death, what would that be on living life, having experienced what you've experienced?
0: I think that life is incredibly beautiful and uh, one should rescue the beautiful things of life and not the horror. And sometimes, you know, they come in the same package and uh, the difficult thing is to be able to separate them and to stay with the best. Don't stay with stuff that hurts you and that is going to make your life more difficult. Stay with things that make you grow and enjoy life because we only have one.
1: Well, Guillermo, I think that's a beautiful message to end on, seeing the beauty in life. And I think if someone like you, who has seen so much suffering and violence, can see the beauty in life, then there's hope for all of us. Guillermo, it's been Such a pleasure. I could talk to you for a long time. You have a lot of stories.
0: Thank you very much, Ramita. It's been a pleasure to speak with you.
1: It's been amazing. Thank you so much, Guillermo.
0: You are welcome.
1: You can watch Guillermo's incredible, award-winning film, First Contact, Lost Tribe of the Amazon, on Netflix if you're outside the UK. For his latest work, check out his page on the Channel 4 News website. He's also on Twitter, at... Yemo Galdos Thank you for listening to this episode of The Line of Fire. If you'd like to follow me, my Twitter handle is at Ramita Navai And if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe. And tell your friends they can find us wherever they get their podcasts Until next time The Line of Fire is a podcast from Aura Studios. It was presented by me, Ramita Navai and edited and produced by Chris Scott. Our executive producers are Claire Cottrell and Richard Osman.